Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your observations, your hot takes, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. Over 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab. I got some good comments. There are no huge topics right now. There's no, there's nothing setting the tennis world ablaze, but sometimes those kinds of weeks are nice. Maybe I can go a little more rapid fire and get to more comments. I always say that. I don't know. Uh, before I get started, I do want to say, if you have been enjoying uh, what Maggie and I, Maggie is the person who has been helping me, um, have been doing on YouTube shorts, I do want to uh, plug my TikTok. I'm now on TikTok. I am not much of a TikTok user but I am now a TikTok creator. You can follow me. Uh, the handle is at Gil Gross. All right. Want to throw that out there. Appreciate it. Um, and let's get started. First one is from Karen. Reposted from last time. Hot takes. Tsitsipas is better at AO than Medvedev as his three semifinals and one final uh, compared to Daniil's two finals and two fourth rounds. The nicknames, by the way, are uh, Tulsi Pass and Dead Fish, but I translated them for clarity. Uh, those are good nicknames. I like it. Uh, I think I agree. I think I agree. In terms of resume, like not who is the better player in the last three years on a surface like the Australian Open, like who has been better at the Australian Open. Personally, I would take three semifinals and a final versus two finals and two fourth rounds. Yeah, I, I, I would take the consistent getting to the semis and then also, you know, reaching that final. I mean, you could give Daniil bonus points for almost winning one of the finals, but in reality, a loss, a loss. That's how I look at it. So yeah, I agree with that. All right, next one. Sampras isn't tier one because he won significantly fewer Grand Slams and Masters 1000s than the big three and never got the career slam while Joker and Roth both have the double career slam. I don't think it's fair at all to compare surface versatility in the 90s to surface versatility today, because pretty much all players are more surface versatile today than they were in the 90s. And it was very typical from your Boris Beckers of the world to your Goran Ivanisevic's of the world. Uh, for players who were going to have success at Wimbledon to not have any success at Roland Garros, that was that was not abnormal back then. And, and today it actually is abnormal. Uh, there are tons of players Outside of the big three, this isn't just special to the big three. There are tons of players who we expect to do well at both, whether it be Tsitsipas, whether it be Sinner, whether it be, you know, Alcaraz eventually right now. Uh, they're surface versatile players. That's kind of the norm now with the homogenization. I don't even want to say necessarily of court speeds because 
That is something that I do believe has happened, but maybe is a little bit overblown when it comes to why we've seen this dynamic. It is really the homogenization of play style, right? Which has been potentially even more more informative to why we've seen players become more versatile across the surfaces. Uh, I feel like Sampras is tier one because he, I think, had a similar grasp on the slams for the period of time that he played in versus the field. Now, I know that there's less longevity there, bit of a late start to winning a lot of slams, U.S. Open, that first U.S. Open when he was a teenager aside, and a bit of an early exit. Um, but I, I, I still think at the time, he was the man at the majors besides Roland Garros, uh, you know, for, for his era. So I still think he's tier one. Draper will never win a slam because his biggest weakness is the most important shot after the serve, the forehand. He makes prime Murray's forehand look like Delpo's. <laughs> well, look, I, I agree with you. It needs to get better. I will, I will go in the middle on this take because I think the forehand can easily get better. From a technical standpoint, I think it's okay. The, the physical tools are there, the racket head speed, the acceleration that you need on the forehand, it is there. He just needs to get comfortable with hitting it flat because with the spin rates that he is hitting at, uh, he doesn't have enough strength to hit with that kind of spin rate and still get the ball through the court offensively. I kind of feel like that shot will get better, so I will uh, agree and disagree with that. Yes, the forehand needs to get better for him to become elite, in my opinion. Because, uh, as you noted, the forehand is a very important shot. I don't even know if... It depends on the surface, really. If you like... On clay, it's the most important shot. I think it's more important than the serve on clay. Next one is from Brain Talk. Uh, this was posted just like a couple hours ago. It doesn't have any likes, but it it's topical, so I, I chose it. Uh, hi, Gil. Just wondering what your thoughts are about, one, the growth of Sinner over the last few years and his first top three win, if you have any more after the last video. And two, what was your gut reaction to seeing Alcaraz back on the court? I mean, how he moved slash played, etc. So I've been really busy with, uh, with T2 commentary this week. So... While Alcaraz was playing, I was prepping, and I was, I was watching it, but multitasking. Uh, I'll give my thoughts on Alcaraz first. Here's the thing that stood out to me. First of all, the explosive movement was good. The shot-making was good. It was just nice to see, refreshing to see, you know, all the stuff that makes Alcaraz exciting was still there. It was a three-set uh, three win against Laszlo Gera, by the way, in case, in case anybody missed it. Uh, the one thing I noticed, though, was, and the one thing I was looking out for was his serve, something I've covered at length, is that the serve is going to be one of the major things to watch this year. And he was not hitting the same clay court serve in this match that he was last year. So last year, if you watch him over clay court season, it was a lot of kick. And it's a good kick serve that Alcaraz has. And that was okay at the time. That was very okay, actually. It was actually pretty good. Just to set up the forehand, just heavy kick serve, high to the righty backhand, and then attack the next ball. Even if it's on the plus one backhand, Alcaraz can attack the plus one backhand too. But basically, create, you know, and generate off of the third shot. And that was okay for Clay. And then we saw him at Wimbledon, and moving forward, get away from that first serve kicker. And at the time, I praised him. I said, oh, look, that's great. He's actually 
adjusting and he's malleable and he can get away from what's comfortable to him and he can change the way he's serving. But here's what I didn't think about. Now that he has kind of scrapped that and he's like, no, I'm not just going to throw away my flat serve just because we're on clay. Right now he's developing that shot and basically not hitting it for four months out of the year is not a good thing for the development of that shot. So if he wants to get better at hitting aggressive flat slice first serves, hitting his spots and getting purchase off of his first serve, which is something that he needs to do. If he wants to get better at that, he should still try to do it on clay. Even if it's not going to be as effective, even if he doesn't necessarily need to do it. I like that I saw the flat serve against Jera in this match. And I think we're going to continue to see it out of him even on clay from now on, because his team probably discussed this and was like, Hey, you know, let's, let's just keep hitting this serve because it needs to get better. Uh, and ultimately long-term it will benefit us to continue to hit this serve. So that's what I noticed as for Yannick Sinner, Sinner, uh, beat Tsitsipas today in straight sets at the time I was calling Sakari versus Caroline Garcia in Doha. So I really didn't get a great feel for it other than the fact that every time I looked over and watched Yannick, he was freaking amazing. So that that's really my only takeaway from the match is uh, every, time, every time I looked at the other screen and watched Sinner, he was just doing something very special and uh, very excellent. So all I have to add is this. You know, last week I said, oh, it's great that he got back to winning a title because that's what was kind of lacking last year. Well, the big thing that's been lacking throughout his career— it doesn't even matter. You know, any sample size you take uh, are the, the top five wins. He was uh, one in 16 coming into this match. The only top player who he has really played well on a consistent basis is Alcaraz. Other than that, it just hasn't been there. And he's been close. Uh, especially at the majors, he's been close. Especially if you look at the sets and you don't just really get a feel for the matches. You know, I've I've had a take for a long time that Sinner wasn't actually that close to beating Djokovic at Wimbledon. I don't think he was actually that close to beating Tsitsipas at the Australian Open this year either. But that's all besides the point. Uh, this was a beautiful top five win against a guy who's really good in those conditions. Tsitsipas in Rotterdam, defending finalist, all five court, all five hardcourt titles that Tsitsipas has won in his career have come indoors. He is a good indoor hardcourt player. Really good. It's because of the serve, the forehand, the volleys. And uh, Sinner gets that top five win, which is a good indication that things are going the right direction for him. We go to Desanka. Hi, Gil. Do you think, tennis, do you think that tennis players watch your channel and your analysis? Thank you. Well, no one's ever reached out. Uh, a player has not really reached out and had anything to say to me. Uh, now, I'm not on Instagram much. I am a little bit, but not much. And uh, that might be why. Uh, I don't like, you know, it's not actually easy to really get a hold of me unless you're on Twitter. A lot of players aren't on Twitter. Uh, that might be why, but I think it's more likely that players don't, uh, most players don't engage with my content. Um, I think that's safe to say, fair to say. Uh, not really, they're not really the target audience. Uh, I think a lot of tennis players probably don't consume a lot of tennis content at all. I mean, they're on the damn tour. They don't really need people to tell them about the tour. Uh, they, I think they're very happy to, you know, watch matches. I think some watch matches. I think some don't. I, In fact, I know some don't. 
Uh, some don't want to watch tennis. They don't want to think about tennis. They're tennis players, but they're not tennis fans in terms of watching. So there's a, a good segment of pros that are like that, a good segment of pros that are watching a lot of tennis, but probably aren't listening to a lot of tennis podcasts. And uh, that's, that's, I think, my read on it. That's kind of where I stand on the situation. I could be wrong. Uh, yeah. I, I Do I have much more to say? I don't think so. Whoops. Spilled a little water. For Matthew, second time asking, what forehand grip do you think is preferable for a new tennis player to learn? I learned to play with an Eastern grip growing up, but semi-Western seems like it dominates most of the tennis scene. Do you think players should ever switch and relearn a different grip? Well, it's really, really hard to do. Really hard to do. I mean, it's a it's a massive change. I, I'm not. I don't really speak from experience. Although my grip, uh, my grip actually has shifted slightly subconsciously over time. I think it got a little bit more extreme for for some time, and then it got a little bit more back to semi-Western for some time. Uh, but ultimately, what grip do I think is best? I mean, you, you do have to look to the grip that the vast, vast majority of players uh, are are utilizing, which is the semi-Western grip, uh, which is that, that middle ground. However, if you're asking, you know, between Eastern and Extreme Western— or full Western, I, I see a lot, a lot more good Eastern forehands than I do good full Western forehands. Not even close. In fact, a lot of the, a lot of the full Western forehands on tours on tour are are weaknesses. You think about a guy like uh, Hatchinov or Coco Goff. Hatchinov's forehand is not a a huge weakness, but it has some big issues. I should say. Eastern Eastern grips, though, there are a lot of really good ones. I think Titi Pass's forehand is pretty Eastern. I think Federer's is pretty Eastern. I think Del Potro's was Eastern. Um, there's a lot of precision. There's a lot of advantages in control. Uh, there are, and you know, if you have a if you have good wrists, generally you can still generate the spin, even though the grip doesn't do the work for you. From a spin standpoint, it seems like, you know, a lot of these Eastern forehands, they can still generate the spin. Uh, at, at the same time, th this is not my area of expertise. Expertise. Um, I'm much better with the tactics and the results than I am, uh, the, or I should say the results of the strokes than I am uh, the in-the-weeds technique stuff, like grips. From Adesio, are the two consecutive Grand Slam semifinals of Hachinov the result of consistency at slams, making him likely to take... All right, I'm a little confused by the wording here. Um, are the two consecutive major finals of Hachinov, the result of his consistency at slams, making him likely to take advantage of an opening of a draw, or has he improved significantly in recent times? Okay, pretty simple question, actually. So basically, has Hachinov improved making the semifinals of the last two hardcourt majors, or is it just the same guy who's taken advantage of his draw? I do think that he's played a little bit differently. I don't think his skill set has changed at all. I think it's the same old Tachinov when it comes to what he has the ability to do on the tennis court. However, I do see him understanding himself as a player a lot better and relying a little bit less on his power and focusing more on his consistency. I think... 
for quite a bit of time, he felt like he needed to hit the ball huge because of, you know, I, I don't know what the reason is. I don't need to speculate on that. The point is, I found him playing a lot, actually more aggressively from the back of the court, especially on the forehand side for a long time. And now I actually think he's settled in to a comfort where he's like, look, I can be really consistent. I'm really fit. I don't need to force the issue on my forehand and ask of it to do more than it's really capable of. Like, that was a big issue. We talk about the, the forehand and the shortcomings. Yeah, it's not good in the midcourt. It is not very precise. And as a result, yeah, he can hit it big. Cool. You can hit it hard, but he's not very accurate on it. And as a result, when he's really trying to, to attack and he's not opening up the court properly and not demonstrating enough patience, it just gets him into, into trouble. Uh, so I think he's leaned into the idea that, look, first of all, the backhand is great. I'm going to apply pressure with the backhand. I am going to serve as big as I can, which is pretty big. Above average leaves a little bit to be desired if you look at his height and his build. But above average serving, he's a good mover, very mentally tough, very consistent, and extremely fit. Lean into the strengths. And don't try to do too much on the forehand to the point where you're making a lot of errors on it. And I think that's the big change that he's made. I think that's a very small change, though. I think... Uh, a lot of it is a lot of it has been taking advantage of draws and just the fact that he's really good in best of five. Mentally, physically, you know he's gonna show up. You know he's got it. But that Kyrgios win at the US Open, that's an awesome win. It's a really great win. From Adrian. Hi Gil, I saw this on the tennis Reddit and thought it would be interesting to hear a take on it. Feel free to answer or critique the premise as you see fit. Which of these hypothetical big three would have been the biggest nightmare to face on tour? Nadal with Kyrgios serve, Federer with Vavrinka's backhand, or Djokovic with Del Potro's forehand? Yeah, this is not close. This is not close. It's clearly Nadal with Kyrgios's serve. The Kyrgios serve is a better weapon than Vavrinka's backhand and Del Potro's forehand. And that's just, that's how it is with the serves. If you're going to give me Isner's serve, Opelka's serve, Kyrgios' serve, uh, that I'm almost always going to take that. I mean, with Nadal's return game, with as much as he breaks serve, like, it, it's not that difficult to, to do this here. Like, with as much as Nadal breaks serve, if you give him Kyrgios' serve, you're absurd. You're an absurd player. Uh, from Max. I remember a Twitter post a while back from Matthew Willis where he argued that it is beneficial for young players to play another sport. I tend to agree with this sentiment. The big three seem to add skills from other sports. Federer's squash skills, Rafa's soccer skills, and Novak's skiing skills have not just been visible during their matches, but seemingly crucial to adding extra elements to their games. What are your thoughts on the subject? There's a lot of really good research on this that is better than anything I'm about to say, but... I fully agree. I think it's a, a huge uh, boon for young players to uh, stay active in other sports. There are a couple of different angles you can take. Uh, you can take the physio the physiological angle where you'll, you'll see a lot of people arguing, a lot of people who know about the human body and athleticism arguing that it is beneficial to develop a, a very diverse set of movements and therefore develop a very diverse set of muscles and different coordinations that are associated with executing different movements. 
And that argument really checks out. That's a great argument. Uh, but I also think that there is a, a pretty bad burnout issue in tennis. Pretty bad. And I think allowing allowing young players to enjoy other sports as they develop is uh, a really good way to uh, keep them active and fresh and developing because you're developing your athleticism. Keep them developing potentially without burning them out to the same extent. The, the, the early specialization, I worry about it mentally. I don't worry about it so much that Oh, like you're not going to be able to get as good at tennis because you are not playing any soccer anymore, right? It's not so much that. It's just I worry like I just think a lot of a lot of young players absolutely hate their lives and hate the sport by the time they're they're 17 and and that first of all sucks and second of all is going to be a problem in their ability to be a successful tennis professional. Next one is from Ron Robbie. Channel question. I just listened to your 2019 ATP Finals review episode. Uh, dear God, why'd you do that? Uh, you said that the channel is at 25% of its potential. Fast forwarding three and a half years. Where do you think the channel is at? And uh, what are your growth goals slash ambitions? You're probably one of the top three uh, YouTube channels as is. So wondering what is your take on all, on all of your success? Um, so at the time, the biggest resource that was missing for me was time because I was consistently busy at that time in my life. And I, I wasn't able to, to put as much time in this. And I have been l lucky enough with what I've been doing after graduating college, where I actually have been able to not always, but in pockets, I've been able to fully focus on this. For example, uh, at many of the, the recent majors, uh, like this year's Australian Open. I did get to just treat this as my job. And for two weeks, I got to just do this. And that has been the biggest thing uh, that has helped me grow as, as a channel. But also it's something that I, at that time, man, I, I just really hoped that at some point I would get a chance to do that. And I'm just really happy that I have gotten the chance to do that. Very grateful for that. So that's the biggest thing. Um... I haven't done all that much thinking about about growth goals and and ambitions honestly. I don't I don't have anything profound to share with you guys. But right now I'm really happy with how things are going, but I'm going to continue to get better and better incrementally. That is currently the plan. Hi Gil, this question might seem out of touch with the current period. Still, I'd love to know what do you think was the difference between pre-2011 and 2011 Djokovic? It's as if he completely transformed physically and mentally. I know the obvious stuff about going gluten-free, etc., but I've never seen anyone transform the way he did. It's as if he became a completely new person. Well, there were a lot of things that happened there. Uh, you mentioned the gluten-free thing. That has gotten a lot of publicity, a lot of press. Uh, I think mentally the Davis Cup title at the end of 2010 was a big... A big moment for him. It inspired him. It increased his confidence. It seemingly increased his willpower. Somehow it had a way of doing that. Um, and his belief. But I guess the one thing, the 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 place I want to go with this question is there are probably some <laughs> some some misconceptions and some revisionist history about how good Novak Djokovic was pre-2011. Because the answer is. 
He was pretty remarkable. And I still think at the time, in 2011, the main thing that was being covered here was the improvement of Novak Djokovic's serve. And I still think that's the big thing there. I, yes, I think all the other stuff is important. I, I really do. And that n none of this stuff is ever binary. But I think it's also important to note that Djokovic was very, very consistently, uh, for, for large periods of time, he was the third best player in the world, actually. There's probably some revisionist history about the fact that Novak Djokovic had the worst serve in the top 20, hands down. One of the worst serves, maybe the worst serve in the top 50, and was still a top four player. That's pretty remarkable. It's pretty hard to do. That tells you how good he was, even pre-2011, at returning, at winning from the baseline in the rallies, at defending, all of these things. He was pretty incredible, all right? So I want to throw that out there. The serve was still probably the biggest thing of, of, of all of it because it was a bona fide weakness. And it's pretty hard to be the best player in the world. Who's become the best player in the world with the worst serve in the top 20? Like, when has that happened? All right, here's a question from Ryan J. Ryan J, another member. Uh, what do you think about extending the changeover time in between sets? More and more players are, are using bathroom breaks and changing clothes as an unofficial timeout. It seems like it would be better just to standardize a longer break instead of having some players use the bathroom as a loophole. Compared to other sports, the two-minute break is quite short. When attending matches live, I've noticed a lot of fans leave their seats at the end of the set and often can't get back in time. Do you think that adding a few more minutes would be better for both the players and the fans. Thanks for the top-notch tennis content. Thank you. The, the person who I have actually seen pay the most attention out of anybody else to change over time in tennis media is Mark Pecci, who uh, does commentary for Tennis Channel and uh, Amazon Prime, Australian Open World Feed, all that good stuff. Pecci is of the opinion... It's fascinating. I, I've got to talk to him about this, and I, I will soon. I'm going to get him on the show soon. Uh, that the changeovers between games should be shortened to 45 seconds. So clip off 15 seconds. All right. If the players are down, I don't, I don't think that's a bad idea. Although, uh, I, don't know, I don't know what it would do to TV ad revenue. Not sure. You'd probably lose one ad. Every single change changeover, uh, but okay, that's an interesting idea. But I also, I believe, hopefully, I'm not getting this wrong. I think Mark, after the after uh, set one and set two, wants like a 10 minute intermission. So that is the first time that I ever thought about this. I personally like the idea, not thinking about all of the stakeholders involved, just me. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. Gives you a chance to kind of reset in the match. Yes, the 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 live viewing audience uh, in in arena gets a chance to, you know, go to the bathroom, get food, get beer, booze, whatever, uh, which is good. I think even the television products can benefit if the proper resources are being put into it, which oftentimes is impossible in the sport of tennis. But if the proper resources are being put into it, I think there can be a lot of benefit to having a good amount of time uh, between sets to just talk things over 
it doesn't even need to be just about the current match that's being covered. It can be, you know, daily results and, and, and all of that good stuff. But just that time. And for it to be predictable, I think, is the key. The fact that these breaks are already happening, but you're, as this, as Ryan points out in this comment, these breaks are already happening, but they are intermittent and unpredictable, and you can't plan for them. And as a result, they are not maximized. What about stuff like performances that other sports are able to do at halftime and uh, in between in between quarters in a lot of other sports? You have interviews, right? The coaches are interviewed. Now, sometimes the interviews themselves, they're not great in, in the middle of the game. And I don't know if we want to bring that uh, in tennis because so often it's just absolute trash and they don't want to talk. But there's so many things that can be done with that period of time. And personally, I would appreciate it. I would I would appreciate it. In my experience of consuming tennis, I would love a break between between sets, uh, between maybe after the first two sets. I would I would love that. From Sharon, hi Gil, could you explain the difference between TC T two TC plus? I've been confused about figuring out where to watch each of them and what matches they will be showing. Also, do matches on tennis TV use the same commentary as Tennis Channel for matches, or do they have different commentators? Uh, I want to get a subscription since Tennis Channel doesn't always show the matches I want to watch, but I haven't been able to figure out what to get. Uh, this would mostly be to watch ATP matches. All right. Uh, thank you for giving me a perfect opportunity to be a corporate shill for Tennis Channel. Here I go. Here I go. Company man. Um, all right. Well, Tennis Channel is the linear channel where you need, in order to watch Tennis Channel right now, and by the way, this could change. Uh, but right now you need a subscription to cable television or a, a streaming service like Sling, which is what I have, which mimics a linear television subscription in the general sense over it. You know, it's just over the internet, right? Instead of over fiber optics or cable or, or whatever, or dish, satellite, whatever, right? So in order to watch Tennis Channel linear, you need a, a subscription that is going to uh, bundle a bunch of different tel television stations. I hope that this doesn't bore the international audience, but maybe they can uh, take interest in what it's like in the U.S. Uh, TC Plus is over-the-top streaming, and for the most part, you can get um, you can get almost every match on TC Plus. Um, almost every men's match. Um, of the tennis season on TC plus. Now you are going to get world feed commentary on TC plus. You're not going to get tennis channel commentary, uh, or tennis channel coverage. All right. And that is a, a yearly subscription and you can stream it on your laptop or your phone or whatever. Uh, T2 is exclusively, it is actually free. T2 is free. It's uh, where I do a lot of my commentary currently. It is exclusively on Samsung TV Plus, which comes with any Samsung TV that you buy that is a smart TV. So any Samsung TV that you may have purchased uh, in the last, I don't know, I'm guessing, but five years, I would say, five, maybe even the last eight years should be a smart TV. I know that they existed even before then. Uh, and if you have a Samsung Smart TV, you likely have Samsung TV Plus, and then you can find T2. And on T2, uh, what we do is show the best match that isn't being broadcast on Tennis Channel. So, uh, for example, today, Sinner was playing Tsitsipas in Rotterdam, 
on T2. We were featuring Caroline Garcia uh, versus Maria Sakari, which was a top 10 matchup in Doha on T2. All right. So that is the breakdown. Next one is from Bran or Brian, but I think it just says Bran. I find the WTA to currently be more entertaining than the ATP. I've always loved the chaos, the drama, and the randomness. Uh, I feel the current slate of the ATP is very stale. Serve plus one dominant. Though the physicality and shot making is amazing, I just rather watch two top 100 women have ball bashing unforced error party with constant breaks over a match with Novak versus a top 10 player. All right. The one thing that I will disagree with is unforced error party because I think a lot of the top women are incredibly consistent. I never judge any fan for enjoying the WTA product or the ATP product more than the other one because they are different. They are different. There there are a lot of similarities. We're talking about the same sport. Uh, they There is obviously tons of overlap, but the product is different. The tennis looks different. It does. The way that things have played out in recent times is different. It is. So... Folks can like the ATP more, WTA more. Uh, to me, it's got to be a judgment-free zone because the products are different. That's all I want to say. All right? Appreciate this, everybody. Thank you for everybody who left a comment. Follow me on TikTok. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.